According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. We handled uh, Isaiah in 66 Sundays, and now we are 19 weeks into a 52-week marathon uh, dealing with Jeremiah in 52 Sundays. Uh, we uh, left off a couple weeks ago. I appreciate Bob taking my place last week, and it's been a couple of weeks now since we've been here. Uh, we had the potter's message in chapter 18. He went to the potter's house, and there was a message that came with the potter. Uh, we kind of continue that this week in chapter 19, because while he's there, he needs to obtain, uh, to buy, to steal, to uh, purchase, to kana, to obtain a potter's earthenware jar. He also needs to kana some of the elders of the people, and he needs to kana some of the senior priests. And so uh, if you've been with us in Proverbs, we've had some kana studies not that long ago in Proverbs chapter 8, and uh, all that homework that we did is going to be useful today, um, or not, as, uh, as he obtains the earthenware jar and as he obtains the priests that have to bear witness to him smashing the earthenware jar. And I lamented the fact that never in 20 years of pastoral ministry have I ever smashed a jar in church in front of everybody uh, as a demonstration of any prophetic message. Uh, Not uh, my dispensation or not my calling. But this is what uh, Jeremiah has been called to do. There's doctrine associated with smashing this jar. And uh, we'll be seeing that here this morning. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. And so he's going to be faithful in this message. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions and to teach us the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that it is for us to assemble together. Father, it is your grace provision that has made it possible for us to be here today. I thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of Jeremiah who ministered for so many years in total hostility, and yet he stayed faithful to you every step of the way. We thank you for that pattern. I pray, Father, that we might be imitators, that we might uh, learn the lessons we need to learn, Father, as our message is going to get more and more unpopular in the coming years. Father, I pray that you would equip us to stand fast as a remnant. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So this is what sets the table. Uh, I'm calling this a leadership retreat. I don't know if it's fair or not, but uh, to put it in today's language, Jeremiah will convene a leadership retreat in Topheth. The the, uh, valley here has a couple of different names. The Valley of Ben-Hinnom is one of them. Uh, Topheth is another name. Topheth specifically is a precise location within the valley, but the the terms are used interchangeably. Uh, In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it would uh, come across to a new name. It would be called Gehenna, and Jesus would speak of Gehenna, and the Greek Gehenna speaks of hell. And in so many respects, this valley is hell on earth when you understand the terrible, terrible evil that takes place in this valley from Old Testament times in the child sacrifice of of, uh, uh, Topheth. 
And that's what's going to be uh, spoken of here in these 15 verses. So it's, it's a short chapter, 15 verses. I think even with a, this being a communion Sunday, we should get through these 15 verses in pretty short order. Uh, but the instructions are to take a jar. He's, I mean, he's already at a potter's house anyway from chapter 18. So while he's there, he can obtain an earthenware jar and uh, then take along some elders of the people and some of the senior priests. You can, so you can think of this as we might call today a leadership retreat. And go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the valley of uh, the sons of Hinnom, uh, which is by the entrance of the, of the Potsherd Gate, all right? The garbage gate, the trash gate. Sometimes it's called the dung gate. It's got some different uh, labels, some of which are a little bit awkward in church on a Sunday morning. But there it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the trash gate. It's where they take their chamber pots, where they take their potsherds so they can smash them. And, or if they've already smashed, they can just throw them in the, the big ravine that served as the, the, the garbage heap for the city of Jerusalem. The landfill, if you will. And uh, proclaim there the words that I tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings, plural, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle. It is not a happy message, and yet he's going to deliver it. The people are going to hear it, and they're not going to want to hear it. But they can't escape the truth of what God is revealing here in their pending national destruction. There was a shorter version of this message that was included in chapter 7. If you were with us back in chapter 7, I would encourage you to go back and review those notes, verses 27 through 34. Uh, It was the first of 15 times that the prophet Jeremiah would deliver a message such as this, Days are coming. It's the first of 15 days are coming messages that are common in the book of Jeremiah. This is the the fourth of the 15 days are coming messages as uh, the days of Israel's destruction are pending. There is nothing they can do to stop it. They have already crossed the point of no return. And uh, what will happen, in fact, on this day, as you know, the Jewish people celebrate the the destru- don't celebrate, but they commemorate and they grieve over and they commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, here we are, and this is uh, kind of an interesting Sunday to be uh, at this particular chapter. Um, so uh, we saw a little bit of this here in in uh, chapter seven. I'm not going to go back and th- I think in the shortness of our time and try to review that. The elders and the senior priests are acquired along with a potter's jar. And the verb kana means to acquire, to get. And sometimes it's to purchase or to steal or to birth or to, you know, there's, there's any number of ways that we can acquire things. And uh, it's a significant verb in Proverbs chapter 8 when we talk about God the Father acquiring wisdom and, and how the role of Jesus Christ in his hypostatic union was begotten by the Father uh, before the foundation of the world. And we spent a lot of time talking about Cana in a childbirth context there in Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, totally inappropriate here. Jeremiah isn't going to birth a, uh, an earthenware jar. I suspect he's going to purchase it. Uh, unless the potter just gives him one for free, since he's a, a prophet of the Lord. He's also going to acquire, the, the, the verb actually is not even restated, it's one verb with three objects. He's going to acquire these elders and these senior priests. He's going to start with the leadership. 
And I find it significant because it's not a happy message. And before the population is going to hear this message, which happens at the end of the chapter, the leadership is going to hear this message up front. And he's going to make sure that the senior priests and the elders uh, are very clear on what this message is all about before it gets repeated, before it gets restated to the general audience of the, the general population of, uh, of Israel. This leadership retreat in Geben-Hinnom, and that's the Hebrew is what comes across in the Greek as Gehenna, uh, Ge for valley and Ben for son, Hinnom, a proper name. But the sons of Hinnom, the sons of Gehenna, um, they hear a message from Lord Sabaoth. Lord Sabaoth, his name. You ever, you ever sing that? We sing that hymn uh, that it mentions Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age, the same, right? A mighty fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth is not a happy name, okay? That is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord God of the armies. That is his battle name. That is his combat name. That is the name when he is showing up to do some combat business. Uh, you, you, want, you want the God of mercies to come, the God of comfort to come, the God of uh, Jehovah Jireh to come, or Jehovah our healer, or any of these other. There's better names to come and deliver a message. But when thus says Yahweh Tzivayoth, here is what the Lord God of the armies has to say, you are you know, due for some judgment. And that's what happens here. So they're here to hear a message from Lord Sabaoth to the kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some of these titles, by the way, are extraordinary. How many kings are there at one time anyway? Why, why is he speaking to multiple kings? There's only one king at a time, okay? I mean, occasionally they'll have a co-regency, but particularly in this era, uh, he's addressing all the kings, all of the remaining kings and from this point to the captivity, the final five kings of Judah uh, that were all wicked after Josiah, all right? And so it's a message to every king that's going to be on this throne from now until, until Zedekiah, as well as the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, you can think about what happens when our nation is so diminished and so diminished and so diminished. What happens when we lose, you know, 48 of our 50 states and all that's left of what used to be the glory of the United States of America is just, you know, Texas and Oklahoma, all right? Because we've lost the other 48 states, why did I save Oklahoma? I don't know. But um, they, had, they had Judah and Benjamin were the two tribes of what they had. Ten tribes were already gone. And then there was a city, a capital city, Jerusalem, that was packed with refugees streaming in from all these other tribes. And so inhabitants of Jerusalem, recognizing the last remnant of all those other tribes that no longer had a land grant, no longer had their villages and their territory and their, and their tribal uh, areas. They became a cosmopolitan people, identifying with the city of Jerusalem, known as Jerusalemites rather than uh, Zebulonites or Gadites or Ephraimites and so forth. All right. Got a diagram to show you. I don't know how well that's going to... That's not too bad. Show up there, give you kind of a, a 3D view of, of Jerusalem and uh, the different parts, the different hills and the different uh, portions of Old Testament Israel. So for example, the Temple Mount is the easiest one to spot. But this here is the original Zion, the original hill, the southeastern hill. The picture is kind of looking in a northeasterly direction. So um, You've got the, the city of David or the original Zion right there. You've got the Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount right there. There's a northwest hill. There's a southwest hill over here. And uh, 
the regions there. Of course, Mount of Olives is to the east, and in between is the, the great Kidron Valley in between. Now, the valley we're studying today, the, the ugly valley, the, the valley of hell, that was constantly burning, they were constantly burning the refuse, the trash, the corpses of the child sacrifices. I mean, it was just a horrendous valley. But that's this Hinnom Valley down here. And it would curve up to the, kind of to the north in this uh, section of the city. Let's see. And uh, let's not do that. Another picture. And I'm not sure if I can zoom in on that or not. Yes. How about that? I can... Isn't this fun? All right. I'm learning how to use the touch screen on the tablet. All right. So uh, here you kind of get a sense for the different valleys. The Northwest Hill, Southwest Hill, Southeast Hill, the Temple Mount. Um, the valleys in between. There's actually a central valley, the Tyropenean Valley, in between the various hills within the city walls. But when we're talking about the Hinnom Valley down below there, altars for child sacrifice, worship of Molech, some terrible idolatry that took place down in there, uh, the constant burning of the refuse, the burning of the trash, smoke was always coming up. There was always a a haze. It was, it was thought of as a, as a haunt of demons, as a, as a gloomy place. And it became a, a visible picture of hell. It became a visible picture of what they might anticipate in, uh, you know, for unbelievers that don't go to heaven when they die, for those that go to a place of burning torments. That was a great visual illustration. So in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the very language, Gehenna, became a term that spoke of hell. By the time Jesus uses it, it's, it's a, a synonym for hell itself, for Tartarus or for Hades or any of the other Greek expressions. Tradition is that hill of evil counsel there on the other side of the valley is where Caiaphas had his residence and Jesus had to face one of his trials. Can't prove that, but that's one of the legends anyway related to that. All right. Love it when a plan comes together. All right. So hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 3, Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place in which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place. They have actually done damage to the geography. They have affected the locality by what they did in that locality. So they have forsaken me, and they have made this an alien place. All right? And there's two aspects here. And this, I tell you, if we were, if we were doing this on a more in-depth format, we would stop here for weeks. We would have to stop here and deal with some, I think, some powerful principles on haunted locations, on defiled territory, on the nature of sin in terms of bloodshed and fornication that defile real estate. And what happens? Can a land be God-forsaken? This text says yes, because it's the people that have forsaken God, but the land has been alienated. All right? And in fact, I think the, the Holman, I like the Holman translation of this expression as well, that, that speaks of the damage that's done to the land. You've, you've made the land foreign. It's not supposed to be foreign. It's, it's supposed to be ours. But we've made it foreign. We've made it foreign because 
we have forsaken of the God that has given us this land or blessed us with this land, all right? And uh, every time we sing, um, God bless America, I wonder why should he, you know, and we've forsaken him the way that we have, you know, land that I love. Well, what's, what are we doing to our land? And how is our bloodshed and our fornication defiling this land? And how are we alienating this land? To the point then when the land itself will vomit us in, uh, in, in the judgment of what happens there as a consequence. So there's a tremendous amount there that we want to understand. Um, there's a point here. Idolatry is a personal forsaking of God and a geographical estrangement from God. Idolatry does this. We see right here in this, in this fourth and fifth verse. They have forsaken me, and they have alienated this place. They have made this an alien place. So it is a forsaking of God and a geographical estrangement from God. Remember, the, uh, when we read Acts 17 and when you read about God's purpose in his sovereignty over nations and how he appoints nations and he appoints their boundaries and their appointed times of their habitation, why is this uh, not Comanche land anymore? Why, you know, it used to be. Why, why is it uh, not Mexican land anymore or Spain or France or any of the flags that used to fly over Texas? And what happens when Texas gets its seventh flag? when it's no longer the flag of the United States of America that flies over this soil. This is uh, God's in charge of all of this. But when you read Acts 17, pay attention. You're going to notice there's a purpose clause attached to that, that it's his sovereignty over the appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation that they should seek him. The purpose is God consciousness and gospel preaching. If this land ceases being a land of freedom where the word of God is taught, where the gospel is proclaimed, then we will, uh, we will be kicked out of this land as well. God has his purpose in this land. So I encourage you to read Acts 17 sometime and work your way through that, uh, that text. It's interesting too, we studied this, by the way, let me finish verses 4 and 5 here. Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Innocent blood. It's a significant significant theological theme. Innocent blood. The day Adam and Eve were caught in their sin, innocent blood was shed. A sheep died so they could be clothed. All right? Innocent blood is significant. And they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Why do ideas pop into your mind? Why do crazy ideas pop into your mind? Why do good ideas pop into your mind? Why do wicked ideas pop into your mind? And if there's an idea that never popped into God's mind, why is it popping into their mind? Where do these ideas come from? See, it's from the heart that these, these, we saw that already in Jeremiah 17. Out of the heart proceed these things of, of wickedness. So therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. When, when Nebuchadnezzar finally comes and brings the complete destruction of this city, this valley becomes the place of their slaughter. 
I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. I will also make this city a desolation, an object of hissing. You know, it becomes a legacy thereafter in passing by. It's like Chernobyl today. You want to go to Chernobyl today? And that explosion happened in 1986. And I still don't recommend getting too near to that place, okay, and the radiation of the meltdown of what happened there in in Ukraine. And so I'm going to make this place an object of hissing, a desolation, object of hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. You know, and the Bible doesn't make excuses for things, and it doesn't tolerate the things that should be abominations. It hisses at the abominations. An abomination is something that you want nothing to do with, that you are so abhorred, it's so abhorrent that you push it at arm length and you want nothing to do with it. You certainly don't want to celebrate it or embrace it or, or approve of it. It's an abomination. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and on, in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. So there's verses 1 through 9. That's not a happy message. All right? And yet Jeremiah is faithful to deliver it, faithful to, uh, to preach it here to the leadership. You know, there's a principle here, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. I just want to bring it to your attention. I would recommend that you uh, review, maybe you can go back to the Proverbs notes that we studied in Proverbs chapter 6. There are six sins, even seven, which my soul hates, says the Lord. There are seven sins that stimulate the sovereign soul, Sana. Sana is hatred. And every time this world tries to tell you that hatred is always wrong, point them to this passage and say, no, God hates. And the things which he hates, I'm supposed to hate. If I have a different attitude than what God, if I don't sanah what God sanahs, I, I need an attitude adjustment. Because why would I celebrate what God sanahs, what God hates? All right? And there are seven, six, even seven. And when you read in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, you're going to see that list. And it includes the hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. All right, and so when you think of the sins that will for, that will defile a land, open fornication is one. The innocent bloodshed is the other, and then you compound it when the one leads to the other. Right? You know, all the rampant fornication leads to the the necessary abortion because who needs uh, you know who wants babies to slow down our fun, and so you have the rampant fornication and then the rampant bloodshed, the innocent blood of what. Uh, of uh, the child sacrifice. And this is what defiles the land. And so, um, interesting in different ways, what happened in Genesis 4 when Cain murdered Abel? The blood was crying out from the ground. What's that about? How is it that innocent blood, the blood of Abel, he wasn't guilty of anything, why was he put to death? And so the innocent blood of Abel cries out from the ground. And the Lord himself comes to investigate and he comes to inquire and he comes to to ask Cain about his brother. We're very familiar with that story, but do we pay attention to the nature of blood, the defilement of the ground that happens there with that innocent blood? What is blood anyway? Why is it that God designed for blood to be the life of man? 
The life is in the blood. The soul is in the blood. Okay, soul life. And so how do these things work? And why is innocent blood the key issue for human redemption? It is, it, it is so vital that we understand these things. It's, I mean, the whole scope of Scripture gets tied into these because it's innocent blood that redeems us. It is innocent blood that satisfies the Father. It is the infinitely, eternally, holy, perfect, sinless Son of God that purchases our redemption. And so to, to attack the image of God or to shed man's blood or to murder your fellow man is, is the pinnacle of an attack against God himself. So many of these things are, uh, are, are just connected together in ways that I think freq- frequently we don't even give it a second thought. We don't even consider everything that's being brought into focus on the basis of, uh, of these principles. All right, so we have the passage there in Genesis 4.10. Um, how about uh, Deuteronomy 19.10? I'll tell you what, I'll save some time. We'll just do this. There we go. Deuteronomy 19.10. Innocent blood. And again... Um, this is a key. It's a part of their code. It's a part of their civil law. Let me back up a little bit. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers. Notice, when they first go in and conquer, they don't get the entirety of the land grant. They get a portion of it. They go into the land flowing with milk and honey and they get a portion of it, but they don't take the totality of the Euphrates to the Nile. They don't get the totality of what was promised to Abraham. They've never had the totality of what they will have, what Jesus Christ will have in the millennial kingdom. All right, But they have a limited territory that they conquer. And then through obedience, through serving Yahweh, that Israel can have their land expanded. And David would expand it. Solomon would expand it. It'll reach its maximum extent under Solomon. All right, But notice the conditions for the expansion of territory. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory just as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land which he promised to give your fathers, if you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his way as always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. But now notice, and and there's a larger context to this, I'm just trying to show you something. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. This is a chapter that makes provision for cities of refuge. It makes provision for uh, legitimate justice to be applied. Uh, It makes a provision for a manslayer to flee and get a fair trial to adjudicate whether or not he was innocent or guilty of, of shedding innocent blood. All right? And so there's a principle here. Uh, again in verse 10, so innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and blood guiltiness be on you. There's a term that's never spoken of today. What are the, what's the consequence of bloodshed? It's called blood guiltiness. And who is blood guiltiness accredited to? The city where that bloodshed occurs. There is blood guiltiness assigned. If there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall sin and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. 
The blood avenger. Boy, here's a study to do. Do this blood avenger study, and you know what you're going to find out? It's the same Hebrew word as the kinsman redeemer. It's the goel. All right, and you'll understand that there is there are principles to be learned here that are so powerful for us. And uh, in the in the sense of a of a murder victim, it was the nearest kinsman. In the sense of who gets to cast the first stone, if 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 it was your child that was killed, you would have the you'd be invited to be that blood avenger if you were the nearest kinsman. See, Jesus then adapted this in his. You know, let him who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone. He was adapting this principle in, in a different application there in John chapter 8. But there's the avenger of blood. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. All right, now, Satan and the fallen world system and all the God-haters and Bible-haters, they tell you, well, you just can't answer violence with violence. That just begets more violence. And they're missing the point, I think intentionally so. Because the avenger of blood is not simply, it's not just a carnal, vicious, ugly, well, eye for an eye, and you were ugly to me, I'm ugly. No, it is a legitimate function of justice to uphold the glory of God in, in his life. That's why the taking of life has to be answered by the taking of that life. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from you. So long as it goes unpurged, the blood guiltiness continues to defile that city. What happens in Austin when there's a murder in Austin and it takes 75 years for all the appeals to be exhausted before uh, they can finally execute the murderer? How long does that blood guiltiness continue to defile the land where the murder took place? All right, well... There's concepts there as well. But the idea of innocent blood and the, the preciousness of this, this is what's being spoken of. And, and to take the children, to sacrifice to Molech, to pursue the, all of the, the, the horrible fertility cult rituals that they did in the worship of Molech and the things here, it was prominent in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Manasseh's day and became so prevalent that even when Josiah tried to remove the high places, he was only limited in his success. The last good king could only remove so much of it. All right? They had passed a point of no return. All right. Well, how well did this message go across? Verse 10. Returning now to Jeremiah 19.10. So after you preach this message, you might be wondering why you're holding this jar, then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you. All right? Just smash it right there in front of them. And say to them, Thus says Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of hosts, Just so will I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. That's the point. This, this, you know, in, in the previous chapter, while the, the clay was still on the spinning wheel, while it was still being molded, while it was still being shaped, it was, uh, it was, it was ruined, but the potter was able to reshape it, was able to remold it, right? Was able to fashion it into something good, into something useful. But understand, once the process is done, once he's finished spinning, shaping, and then he bakes it, once the clay is baked and it's, 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 it becomes the, the jar that it becomes, well, then, then you're done, right? Then when you smash it, that's all you got left. 
You know, we're not putting Humpty Dumpty back together again when, when uh, the, all the king's horses and all the king's men, right? So you have this pot, this, this clay vessel, and it's smashed. There's no putting that back together again, see, in human terms. The miracle, of course, is in the millennium, Jesus Christ does put the pot back together again. The, the, you, you read Ezekiel 37, you read about a dead skeleton that comes back to life, and you read the miracle of Israel's national resurrection. But in pure human terms, when you smash a jar, that's it. D- uh, duct tape's not going to help. Glue's not going to help. None of that's you know, going to help. Thinking about my time in Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm, and I had been, I was driving a Humvee, and I was taking a soldier to meet the chaplain, the, the brigade chaplain. And so we were at an intersection in Saudi Arabia waiting for the chaplain to come to minister to this guy. And uh, while we're sitting there, in a, in a, I was military police, so I had an MP uh, vehicle, uh, a long flatbed truck pulled up. And this long, I mean, a monster flatbed truck had a Huey Cobra a helicopter on the back. And that helicopter had either crashed or been shot down or whatever. It was, it was a burning hulk of, of twisted metal that was identifiable as a Huey Cobra, you know, by its distinctive shape. Um, obviously, it was never going to fly again. It was, it was just a hulk that they were hauling away somewhere. Anyway, so this truck pulls up, and I'm thinking, what in the world is this about? And the uh, second lieutenant jumps out, comes running up to me, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what does he want, you know? And and so I get out of my Humvee and I uh, said, hey, LT, what do you need? And, and and I'll never forget, he asked me for some duct tape, okay? <laughs> Which we called 100 mile an hour tape in the Army, but in the civilian world, you call it duct tape. And and I just, I was so flabbergasted, you know? And I have, honestly, I don't know what he needed it for, but clearly... He didn't need it for the hope for the shot down helicopter, but that's how I took it, right? He he asked me for some duct tape, and I looked up back at the shot down helicopter. I said, "Lieutenant, uh, duct tape's not going to help you with uh, with that." In any event, <laughs> that's a fun story. I hadn't thought of that for a while. The um, he laughed. Thankfully, he laughed, so I got away with being kind of a smart aleck with a commission officer. But when you smash this jar, there's nothing going to fix that, okay? All you can do is just pick up the shards and dump it in Gehenna. Dump it in the valley of Topheth, in the valley of of Ben-Hinnom. There is no other purpose for those shards. So, um, as I put it here, Jeremiah's message was a smashing success. All right, verses 10 through 13. He got their attention. It made the point. And they're never going to forget it, even as, uh, you know, there's certain things in our life we never forget. Because they're so visual, because they're so um, appropriate for the time, for the occasion, for the setting. And you can imagine, remember, these guys are the elders, the tribal elders, the chief priests. Jeremiah is probably just 10 years old or 12 years old. We don't know how old he is. He's very young when he's called in the early stages of his ministry here. All right? And so it's kind of hard to to tell in the sequence of these chapters. They're not in order uh, in these 52 chapters. But you can imagine 
uh, you know, you're, you're a high and mighty seminary professor and here's this kid and he comes to class and he smashes this jar in front of everybody. You know, what kind of stunt are you trying to pull, right? But he's doing this all in the Lord's direction. And he's speaking on behalf of Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, his name. And so, uh, you know, this kind of thing you don't forget. So uh, this is what happens. Thus says the Lord of hosts, just so I will break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired, and they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place for burial. And this is how I will treat this place and its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make the city like Topheth. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place uh, Topheth because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly host and poured out drink offerings to other gods. And you think you can hide it. You think you can just create your own little shrine up on your own little rooftop and who's going to know? Well, God's going to know. And he sees all of the demonism and all of the idolatry of, uh, of what they were doing here. The um, sudden and irreparable destruction made the point loud and clear. The sudden and irreparable destruction. By the way, Isaiah had a similar verbal message. He just didn't get to smash a pot in front of everybody. (laughs) All right? But he had a similar verbal message in Isaiah 30 and verse 14. The sudden and irreparable destruction made the point loud and clear. Isaiah 30 and verse 14 I want to double check all these since I'm prone to typos. Yes. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile, have relied on them. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. You know, you see it coming, you see it coming, your fingers in the dike, you see the bulges bulging and bulging and bulging, and so you know it's going to happen. And then when it finally does happen, man, there's just no way to stop it. Whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from the hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. Uh, cistern. So it is so smashed that even the biggest little shard you get is, is not, you're not even capable to, to scoop ashes with it or, or any, uh, anything. Interestingly enough, though, there's another point being made. This smashing point is prophetic. The smashing ministry is prophetic. Jesus Christ is going to have a smashing ministry in the millennial kingdom. You know, when you think about it, an Old Testament prophet, a prophet of Israel, had a rather confrontational uh, message and had a a rather confrontational uh, methodology to his ministry. Samuel would show up and he'd just start, you know, he he took hold of King Agag and he chopped him into tiny bits and sent pieces of Agag scattered all through Israel to make the point. Uh, Prophets uh, were often very brutal in uh, what they were called upon to do in their service to the Lord. And uh, likewise, Jesus is going to rule them with a rod of iron. He's going to shatter them like earthenware. This is prophesied in Psalm 2 in verse 9. You will shatter them like earthenware. So what Jeremiah does here as a a visual aid to his sermon is actually prophetic to how Jesus Christ will rule in the millennial kingdom. It will not all be, uh, you know, rainbows and happiness. Okay? The millennium is going to feature a lot of Gentile resentment for a thousand years. 
And there's going to be more and more hostility and more and more difficulty and less and less cooperation. Fewer and fewer nations will come each year to to pay their tribute at the Feast of Tabernacles. And every nation that stops coming to the Feast of Tabernacles gets their rain turned off. But according to Psalm 2, there's a conspiracy that gets put into effect. And by the time we get to the end of the millennium, you have a global rebellion, Gog Magog, rebellion against Jesus Christ. They are going to march in protest. They're going to demand Satan's release out of the abyss. They want Jesus off the throne and they want, they want Satan released. See. So this is a uh, foreshadowing of the Lord's millennial ministry. I believe also we need to do more study on the uh, demonism that's at work. Behind the fornication, behind the bloodshed is the demonism of Satan's rebellion against God. What are we talking about when we talk about the host of heaven? What are we talking about when we understand Satan and his organizational structure of rulers and authorities and principalities and powers? That there is the, uh, the uh, rebellion of Satan against God. And when humanity abandons God, they don't just abandon God to serve themselves or abandon God to turn to nothing. When they abandon God, they turn to demons. That is, that is unavoidable the demonism of Satan's rebellion against God. And I would encourage you, you'll see this in Deuteronomy 4, 19. You'll see this in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5. The worshiping the host of heaven. 2 Kings 17, verses 16 through 18. I guess we can have a brief time. I'm always running out of time. Um, let's do it the fast way. Deuteronomy 4, 19. Again, it's part of the uh, warnings, it's part of the expectations for when they enter into their land for blessing under covenant uh, provisions in the land of, uh, uh, of Canaan. So beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. You know, originally in Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars had a purpose. And the sun, moon, and stars to the, in the Gentile uh, stewardship had a purpose for signs and for seasons. There was a legitimate function before they had written scriptures. The Gentiles were never given written scriptures like, like the Jews were given written scriptures in the Hebrew canon. Unfortunately, of course, it gets perverted, it gets twisted, and, and what was originally designed becomes idolatry, becomes the astrology of, of demonism, or the demonism of astrology, I should say. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as it is today. That's Deuteronomy 4.19. Also in Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5. 2 through 5. Is that what I said? 2 through 5. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded, and if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that uh, this detestable thing has been done in Israel then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, 
that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is able, he who is to die, shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You think this was a serious deal? You think commandment number one that says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you think that was a serious deal to the Lord God of Israel? The God whose name is Jealous does not tolerate additional gods. Say, capital punishment was the order of the day. We don't have that in our nation, of course, because we're not a theocracy. We're not, a, we're not the covenant nation on this earth. We are a Gentile nation. And so uh, we don't stone people for worshiping other gods. But we better be mindful of how defiled our land is when those gods are worshipped. We ought to be mindful of that and more fervent in our evangelism. We can be salt and light and preserve our nation. Anyway, things to think about. Then the third part of the chapter. See, do I advocate a theocracy? No. (laughs) But I do think that our nation is blessed if our laws are patterned after the, the, the one theocracy that didn't get placed upon this earth. So am I opposed to the execution of murderers? Not at all. There are other crimes as well. Adultery. All right. Homosexuality. Child abuse. Rape. Could, could those crimes also be assigned a death penalty in the legitimate application of God's righteousness and God's justice? Well, good luck convincing a politician to vote for the capital punishment of adultery. (laughs) I don't know how many politicians would vote for that. All right. Now the last part of the chapter here, verses 14 and 15. You know, it's interesting. He delivers this message, and then he walks up to the gate. Look where he goes. Then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people. So he he concludes the leadership retreat, and he marches straight to to the temple, and he addresses all the people. I think it's interesting. Having delivered his message to the elders and senior priests... Jeremiah went to the people and declared Lord Sabaoth's judgment to all the people. And I wonder why he does this. He's not commanded to do this. And what was he thinking? You know, how likely is it that the people he preached to would themselves go and repeat this message? I don't think they would. And I don't think Jeremiah thought that they would. So he goes and he preaches it himself, which is going to get him in, in, in trouble. All right. So uh, he says to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. The leadership is in open rebellion and they're leading the people right down this path. And the text doesn't say that the Lord commanded him to do this. The Lord commanded him to go out to Topheth and preach out there and to smash the jar. He did everything the Lord commanded him to do. And then he kept going. And then he went, he went back into the city and he went to the temple and he told all the people. 
And the text does not say that Yahweh Tsevaioth made him do this or wanted him to do this. It appears to be of his own initiative after he fulfilled the Lord's command. You look at verse 14 and the command is clear. I mean, you look earlier and the command is clear. He says, go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom in verse 2. Smash the jar, verse 10. Those are the things he was commanded to do. But nowhere does the Lord tell Jeremiah, now go back into the town and start preaching in the temple. But he, evidently, he does this on his own initiative. And in so doing, he's going to face some consequences. Next week we'll come back and we'll notice the consequences in chapter 20 is uh, he didn't, uh, Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. So Pasher had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks. There were at the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. All right. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay. Are you going to stay faithful? What if there's consequences such as this? Are we going to stay faithful? So next week we'll come back to this and we'll see this principle. Um, you know, the entire calamity it's brought about because of the stiffened necks and the failure to repent. Time and time and time again, it's because you did not repent. You, they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my words. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember chapter 18, he gave them this message and they just threw up their hands in surrender and gave up. They just lamented the fact when you read in 18 verses 7 and 8 that, you know, we're doomed. They said, um, you know, the nation which I have spoken turns against its evil. I will relent concerning the calamity. And they knew that that, that wasn't going to be them. <laughs> they, uh, they said in verse 12, it's hopeless. We're going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So they knew they, they weren't going to repent. They knew that judgment was coming. My, my question is, for the United States of America, what is our attitude? Do we know that judgment is coming? Are we going to repent? Is the population of the United States going to get serious about the Word of God and serve, serve the Lord God? Are we just going to keep stick our head in the sand and act like, oh no, judgment's not on the way. God loves us. We're, we're in great shape. You know, when the, when the truth is spoken plainly, believers have no options. You know, you live the truth that's plainly taught or, man, here comes judgment. Here comes judgment. And I tremble. I, you know, I, I, I see dark days ahead for the United States because I don't see hunger for doctrine. I don't see a passion for the Word of God. I see a lot of entertainment and fun and games and programs and goofiness. And I see a lot of compromises with the Word of God to go along and get along and be happy with everybody. And I don't see people standing for the truth. And so I wonder sometimes what, uh, what it is that we're going to face. Let's pray. Father, uh, I do thank you for Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness. And Father, we're going to see more of his faithfulness next week as he uh, gets put in the stocks and he's dealing with public ridicule and some abuse. He's going to have all kinds of things. Father, he's going to get thrown down wells. He's going to be all kinds of horrible things in his ministry. And no repentance, no response, no appreciation, no uh, evident, evidentiary fruit, Father. Isaiah had Hezekiah. Isaiah had a good king that humbled himself and that listened and that learned and got 15 extra years added to his life that had fellowship in the Word of God. And Jeremiah had no such king Hezekiah and no such response and no such fruit. 
And yet he stayed faithful and he served you each step of the way. I pray that we might learn from this example. and We might recognize that a day may be coming that we are called upon to be the, the Jeremiah's of our day and age. And uh, Father, I ask that we might have his faith. We might have his courage. We might uh, follow in those footsteps. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.